Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 Podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we will be hearing about the number nine priority, imaging and neurophysiology. We'll hear from spinal surgeons, Bizan Arabi and Sheikha Kurpad, as well as Rosie Hillman, a person living with cervical myelopathy. My name is Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org. And my name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. This is the AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters. So welcome to this special podcast series with AO Spine covering the top research priorities that emerged from AO Spine Recode DCM. This was a process that brought together people living and working with DCM from 68 different countries to establish what are the 10 most important unanswered research questions. The aim, of course, of prioritisation is to help accelerate progress that could change the lives of people affected by DCM by focusing efforts and investment into a few critical questions. But of course, we now need the world at large to be aware of these questions so that they can get answered. And that is really the aim of this podcast series, to really get the context and the background of why these research questions are priorities. That's right. And in today's episode, we discuss priority number nine, imaging and neurophysiology. Or as the full research question reads, what is the role of dynamic or novel imaging techniques and neurophysiology in the assessment of DCM? And to provide some background on the current role of imaging and neurophysiology in DCM, I spoke to Dr. Bizan Arabi, Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Maryland, and I started by asking him for his perspectives on how he uses these investigations today. One of my major interests in life is how human brain works. And it is extremely important to understand that human being has two main functions uh, based on central nervous system. One is, is the dexterity of the hands, and another one is the balance of upright walking. And this is not happening by itself. At any second, millions and millions of impulses go from periphery, primarily from the pressure receptors, touch, uh, muscle spindle, uh, through the lemniscal system, and pass through the spinal cord at the level of the uh, cervical spine and reach the cortex, basal ganglia, brainstem, and cerebellum, when we are talking about DCM, really we, we are talking about a major problem with conduction of these impulses in the uh, spinal cord of the uh, cervical region. So for me, selection of imaging it depends on imaging for diagnosis, therapeutic uh, preoperative selection of my my imaging devices, and also for prognostication of what's, what's, what's going to happen. So three major categories of imaging devices. One is uh, cervical spine plane x-rays. Second is CT scan. And the third is MRI. 
I guess what you were describing at the beginning was a very complex neurophysiological system, a functional system, and what the MRI realistically is offering is is structural imaging. And do you see a possibility in the future those two can come together, that the, the imaging can offer much more of a perspective on the function of the spinal cord rather than just that, that structural image? In the future, we are going to be dealing with quantitative MRI, such as DTI, magnetization transfer, MR spectroscopy, and functional MRI. The question of DTI relating microstructural reality of the spinal cord and function it's very important to give a metrics to the degree of damage and have a surrogate number which indicates how much injury there has been. And that surrogate image could help us in prognostication. For example, we know that if the fractional anisotropy is closer to 0.8 or 0.9 rather than being 0.5, uh, with the same signal intensity on the structural MRI, those patients with fractional anisotropy of 0.8, uh, they have a much better recovery outlook than patients with lesser quantitative measures of fractional anisotropy. So I think we, we need numbers. I ne we need quantification of how many impulses are passing through this little point. For example, recently Smith indicated that uh, nearly 20% of human beings below, above the age of 16, uh, they have asymptomatic spinal cord compression. And if we look at patients above the age of 50, this percentage is going to be even more. And only really the prevalence of DCM is a very, very small proportion of these patients with asymptomatic cervical spinal cord compression. So, uh, if we could, by DTI, um, fractional anisotropy, and microstructural evaluation of the region of the posterior columns, for example, or the ascending lemniscal system, or descending corticospinal tract, if we could find out what proportion of those fibers myelin is injured, or we have dropout of axons, uh, that could prognosticate as far as our surgical outcomes as concerned. Therefore, if a structural MRI of a patient is negative, but you have in fractional anisotropy, you see that the metrics is 0.8 or 0.5 or 0.9 instead of being normal, then maybe you can give us a more indication of being more aggressive in patients with acute uh, spinal cord compression with very few symptoms. And, and, and I specifically say that because, let's say if somebody comes in with a fractional anisotropy of 0.6 or 0.7, at the same time the patient has a central uh, disc osteophyte complex at C3-4, which is touching their spinal cord, and that fractional anisotropy is indication of uh, loss of function, I think I would be very aggressive, even if the uh, structural MRI shows slight touching of disc osteophyte complex of the spinal cord, and there is no signal change. And just, just to touch back on something perhaps which we haven't really considered, do you use much electrophysiology in your, your workup of, of myelopathy? Just to be a, an indir indirect indication of 
loss of function of the descending motor fibers. Uh, you know, honestly, EMG and nerve conduction studies, they are good also to rule out radicular lesions. If there is presence of radicular lesions with asymptomatic spinal cord compression, then that could help me. The weakness is that they are time-consuming, they are uncomfortable, and again, sensitivity and specificity is not very good. Some suggest we use the uh, sensory and uh, evoke potentials and motor evoke potentials during surgery, but again, being a trauma surgeon, I have a lot of difficulty uh, connecting the dots together in the OR uh, and changing my progress of surgery at the time of surgery. For example, of course, I do not do a lot of deformity surgery, but this is the suggestion of uh, our deformity surgeons that if something happens during correction of deformity, how do you manage such finding in the middle of surgery? Usually, we, we, we don't have any chance that stop the surgery. I don't know how to handle it. I talked to the anesthesia, but really um, there is not much I can do or it does not determine uh, intraoperative. But for clinics, I think uh, it's very important to, uh, to, to show if there is any evidence of radiculopathy and that could help the patient's counseling. So going back to your examples um, at the beginning, it's in that sort of mild asymptomatic groups where you think that the, the, the electrophysiology has a role in the outpatient setting. I think so. I think if there is no possibility of checking the macrostructural changes on the MRI, I, I think having uh, changes in EMG and nerve conduction studies to indicate radiculopathy, that could help me uh, about my decision-making of surgery. I guess one thing we also haven't touched on is we've focused very much on the diagnostic workup and, and, and the surgical decision-making. How do you employ MRI today in follow-up of your of your patients with DCM? I'm a very finicky person. I definitely performed immediate post-op MRI to make sure that the spinal cord is decompressed. But beyond that, that sort of binary, you know, is the surgery being sufficient to decompress the spinal cord. Do you find that post-operative MR has much additional value in terms of the trajectory of the patient or explaining perhaps what disabilities they may be left with? In the MRI, on the T1-weighted images, if I see uh, evidence of cavitation or even low signal, any sort of low signal is not a good prognostication sign. Uh, either because of loss of myelin or because of cavitation on T1. If there is nothing on T1, but there is evidence of signal on T2, I would tell them that there is, perhaps I have stopped progression of the symptoms, uh, but there may be improvement of the symptoms uh, within the next six months or one year. If there is a gray signal, I usually say even before surgery, because that's true in acute traumatic central core syndrome. Uh, if there is a gray signal, I usually tell them, and that's usually 90% true, that the, there is improvement of this evidence of dexterity difficulties, or if there is any dysesthesias or paresthesias, there is improvement of that. And uh, as far as functional outcome, such as gait and dexterity of the fingers are concerned, I would usually tell them that there's a good possibility you will have improvement. If the 
signal is almost equal to CSF based on fat suppression signals on the stir, uh, then uh, that uh, is not also a good prognostication sign for uh, promising the patient you are going to get better. I think we can stop progression, but I think what you have lost, probably you have lost. What do you think an ideal imaging assessment should offer today's surgeon? Deformation of the spinal cord, length of deformation of the spinal cord, if the pressure is from front or back, and what exactly the deformity specialist imagines to reinstate the form of the cervical spinal cord so that there wouldn't be stretching or compression or rubbing of the spinal cord forever, meaning that if somebody's cervical spine is straight or slightly kyphotic, and also if, if there is scoliosis, I think the primary function of the surgeon or the deformity surgeon is to make absolutely sure that there is no dynamic or static pressure on the spinal cord or during the dynamic movement of the neck. In other words, you cannot have a, a kyphotic neck and decompress the spinal cord and expect a recovery of function. The spinal cord should be immersed easily, freely in the cervical spine CSF. Nothing else beyond that is not decompressed. And that, that, that we know from, from trauma also. So that was a very technical and detailed overview. What were your takeaway messages from that, Ben? Well, I think the key messages that, that, that came through are that MRI today really can only give us structural information. And that is useful to help us make a diagnosis to inform our surgical decision making, but it's not able to give us the full picture. And I think to do that, what we need is to get techniques that can give us a functional assessment of how the spinal cord itself is doing. Yes, and he does mention that at the end, doesn't he? That with the current MRI techniques, there are features of the spinal cord that he can see that can help him counsel his patients on potentially how things will go for them in the future. Yes, that was fascinating. I think clearly that is something that, that people living with myelopathy really do want to understand, you know, what's going to happen next. But my experience of that sort of assessment is it's quite subjective, you know, Often we're looking at these images, they are, you know, grayscale, they're 2D, often the quality has been reduced because we're looking at them in portal viewers in clinics. And it makes looking at this very small piece of spinal cord and taking out that information very subjective. And I think, you know, Dr. Araby obviously has many, many years of experience of doing that. And, I, and I'm just not sure how consistently we can apply that perspective to routine practice. But probably what it does allude to is the MRI has the capacity to offer this kind of detailed information. And as we move to more new techniques, which really give us objective quantitative outputs, all of this hopefully will become much, much more uh, easily and readily available. Yes. And of course, it's this kind of detail of certainty um, is the kind of information that people living with DCM want from these diagnostic tests. As I discuss with our next guest, Rosie Hillman. I started by asking her about her experience of imaging and neurophysiology as part of her diagnosis of DCM. 
I'd come out of retirement uh, and become a certified nursing assistant to have something to do and maybe give something back a little bit after a long career. Uh, and was working at a uh, skilled nursing facility here in Palm Springs, broke the cardinal rule of nursing, which was I tried to catch a patient who was falling and uh, heard the loud pop as my left rotator cuff exploded uh, in trying to to catch this patient and then had to lift her back up onto her bed with this damaged shoulder. So I really messed it up badly. Uh, Had a rotator cuff repair Right after the surgery, I was experiencing a lot of paresthesia in my left hand, which seemed to be, you know, uh, logical, having just had shoulder surgery. And the only thing that concerned me was that, uh, you know, maybe some nerve damage had been done that was impacting my left hand. But then my right hand started bothering me as well. I went back and presented with that to the shoulder surgeon, and he, uh, you know, very... uh, smartly, intelligently, ordered uh, an MRI and uh, uh, EMG NCS. Immediately, I showed the MRI to my primary care physician. He said, I I want you to not go home right now. I want you to go immediately to the emergency room. You know, he he thought that I would sever my spinal cord and fall down dead at any moment. You know, he was was being a a bit dramatic, it turned out. I, I called I called the shoulder surgeon, who, of course, had gotten a copy of the MRI. He said, not quite that urgent or or emergent, but uh, you do need to do something about it right away. So uh, he referred me to a uh, a spinal surgeon uh, on his team. I went and saw him, who who recommended a three-level ACDF. So that's an, an, uh, uh, an anterior, meaning front, cervical discectomy and remove the discs and fusion. So ADCF, uh, meaning that they go in the front and remove the damaged discs and replace them with various different kinds of things that that will uh, cushion the vertebrae from one another and fuse them together. Uh, I, I wanted a second opinion, so I was referred to USC Keck Medical Center he thought that uh, the the initial surgeon was was underdoing it. He wanted to do a lot more and wanted more stability for the fusion. So he wanted to do the the posterior spinal fusion as well. Uh, so I had an ACDF and also a posterior spinal fusion uh, from C three to T one. What do you think the role is of the person with DCM in their diagnosis? What role do you think they actually play? in this process? My uh, healthcare team, my healthcare providers, they are equipped to determine the signs of my condition, but only I am uh, equipped to express the symptoms. There are sensitivities that I can have uh, to a condition in my body which no one else can have. I think the role is to let them know how you feel, but you know, you don't have to write a book about it. So from all of these tests that you were given, Rosie, who actually requested those different tests? And were there differences in sort of how they were used under the different disciplines? Okay, well, uh, the initial MRI what had nothing to do with my cervical spine. It had to do with the, with the shoulder injury. Subsequent to the shoulder surgery, uh, I again presented to the shoulder surgeon. He then ordered the cervical spinal MRI, 
and EMG to determine if any uh, damage had been done uh, to my neck, uh, you know, either as a you know chronic uh, condition or an injury or from the surgery or its recovery. And it was demonstrated that that, that was indeed the case. So what was the wait like for each of these tests and then for the results? How long did the, the process take before you got your diagnosis? Well, the way that things work here, the laboratories that do uh, MRI and CAT scan imaging uh, generally have no problem with providing the patient immediately after the test with a CD of, of the, the images. So, you know, I, I, I received results immediately and ran home and spun up the CD on my, on my computer. And I, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> you know, I don't know what those images look like. Barely even know how to, how to view them. But the, the viewing that I, I did do uh, made it clear to me that there was something seriously wrong up there. You know, the first MRI that I got looked like someone had taken a, a slab of baby back ribs and slammed them against a telephone pole. What anyone would see was severe impingement on my spinal cord. And it's quite significant damage, so you needed to have something done pretty quickly. How do you think people with DCM and their carers and healthcare professionals would benefit if we resolved Priority 9? If, if the resolution of priority nine is to answer the question, what is the role uh, of those techniques? Uh, I think the answer is the role of those techniques is, is that they are essential, that they are uh, you know, mandatory, that there's no way of uh, adequately approaching the diagnosis of a cervical myelopathy without MRI and uh, EMG and, and other techniques that perhaps I'm unfamiliar with. So listening to Rosie's perspectives and experience really in the context of this research priority, it really does show how both imaging and neurophysiology play an important part of, of guiding diagnosis and management today but they do still require quite a lot of interpretation. They're not 100% specific tools. You know, for example, Rosie saw two different surgeons whose interpretation of those tests were slightly different. Yes, and something else that Rosie mentioned that I found rather shocking as a Brit is that she was sent home with her results, so MRI images, etc., on a CD before they'd been interpreted by a doctor. Of course, that's not how it happens here in the UK, and I can just imagine how scary and confusing that must have been for her. No, exactly. And that, and that really did come across, obviously, quite a lot of distress looking at those images on, on a CD. And I think picking up that point about the lack of specificity, and when Rosie took those images to her primary care physician, you know, they weren't in a position either to help interpret that imaging. And you know, the primary care physician's decision was, you know, rush off to the emergency department. And it was only when calling the spinal surgeon that some more specialist advice came through. So I think what we're clearly seeing here is that these tests have value. They are very, very important today, but there are limitations. And how we move forward with these techniques is something that I spoke about with Professor Shaker Kerpad, Professor of Neurosurgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I started by asking him for his perspectives on the future of medical imaging in DCM. As doers of treatment, i.e. as surgeons, I think we rely very heavily 
on a combination of structural imaging data and functional information, whether it's in the form of clinical exam and or tests to guide treatment. I think the structural imaging has gone through leaps and bounds, but with cervical myelopathy, I think imaging has a tremendous amount of potential, especially MRI imaging, to yield more objective functional information uh, from an imaging perspective. So I think the future would have to involve variations in MR imaging modalities such that we can get down to a finer structural detail in, for example, cervical spinal cord axons, which we know subserve very specific functions. I think that type of tract-based imaging, uh, and there are many different MR modalities that are keying up for tract-based imaging at this point. In addition to that, I think the introduction of dynamic perfusion imaging, which makes us understand the pathophysiology of the evolution of myelopathy would be really important. Uh, whether that's CT perfusion uh, or an MR perfusion technique, the combination of that structural information at the level of axon bundles with functional imaging with related to perfusion, both of which underlie the pathogenesis of cervical myelopathy, would be extremely important in future prognosticating and treatment decisions as surgeons for, for cervical myelopathy. One of the, the challenges with imaging coming online now is that often it's, you know, it's machine dependent, sequence dependent. It's going to be quite difficult to develop generalizable findings, do you think? I think the key here is, you know, one of the things that we're doing in Recode is to look at the disease from the patient's perspective. So I think, you know, if you contextualize the future of imaging from a patient's perspective, you know, a patient wants to spend as little time on an MR scanner as possible and get the maximum amount of information from that little time as possible. So the, the refinements, whether it's inter-scanner variability, inter-reader variability, the ability to acquire images that can get objective information at the track level from a structural perspective, we have to optimize all of those in terms of how little time we can get this information in, like we would with a conventional MRI. So one of the things that we and others on the Knowledge Forum have been working on is is to figure out how to minimize the time the patient spends on the scanner, but yet get the more advanced information. There's also a wide disparity in the use of MRI scanners across the across even the United States and even you know North America and certainly the world. Uh, very few people use MRI scans as commonly as we in North America use MRI scans, or even in Europe use MRI scans. So I think there's also a, a behavioral or an educational piece that would need to grow off of these more advanced imaging technologies, structural imaging technologies like the MRI, to have it more widely adopted. So that's another piece also that I think we need to pay attention to as a, as a cervical myelopathy treatment community. That's fascinating because I think at the moment, you know, so much of these research studies are requiring maybe 60 plus minutes of imaging, possibly people are uncomfortable lying very, very still in that small claustrophobic environment. I think it is challenging to get good quality imaging. I mean, anyone who has had an MRI scan knows how hard it is to lay still in a tunnel for X amount of time. Um, uh, so I think that's really something that we should be thinking of, you know, when we look at this from a patient perspective.
Okay. So perhaps a different perspective on the things that you discussed. And let's imagine that the NIH or somebody else hands you a big, big check to investigate this research question. How, how might you approach or what would be your sequence of events in terms of approaching uh, advancing imaging uh, for myelopathy? Well, I think it has to be a translational platform without question. Um, I think that um, the people who are directly interfacing with the patient uh, like surgeons like myself and, and yourself and others you know, in the surgical field need to be involved uh, really as patient advocates. I think it's critical that surgeons or treating physicians for DCM really understand the science so that they understand what they're going to get out of a certain sequence. Well, should we use a certain sequence? Should we eliminate another sequence? Should we use an abridged version of a certain sequence to make our decision? So I think Having the practitioners being involved in the study design is going to be critical from a patient perspective, from a population health perspective. So this big grant from the NIH, if it were to, if we were to materialize, should really, I think, support the research ideas of treating physicians. And then there should be, I, I would say that there, there should be a team of engineers and MR scientists and physicists who understand, um, you know, imaging sequences and, and so on, so that they can work hand in hand with the treating physicians to develop the best possible efficient imaging sequences. I think that's already happening, but I think um, it doesn't necessarily happen with as much fluidity. So one of the things that we do here is we have a joint department of biomedical engineering between Marquette University and MCW. And this is just an example that's, that I know of locally that have helped set up, wherein engineers who love to tinker with like little variations in, in a sequence or how the imaging is done, et cetera, we have those individuals come spend a week in the operating room, just watching the workflow and looking at how surgeons make decisions, not saying that the decisions that we make today are anywhere near perfect, but I think understanding what it is that makes a surgeon make a certain decision uh, and that understanding by an engineer will help speed up the process of refining the sequences so that the most actionable information can be obtained. So I think a grant should really be multi-institutional, translational, and involve the people with the right type of expertise and bring them together in teams. Slightly different than the conventional scientist single lab uh, concept for which most of these R01s and other grants are given, but I think a team-based grant, sort of like a DARPA grant where there, there's, a, there's a goal in mind and then you construct backwards from the goal as to who are the key players that are, that are necessary to get to that goal. That, that might be what I would see as the future of, of what a comprehensive grant for imaging development for DCM should be about. So, a bright future for imaging in DCM. Yeah, I think so. I think that really comes across. There's some real promising opportunities on the cusp of clinical practice or certainly in the pipeline. I just want to reinforce where I think that imaging is going. You know, today, what we're relying on is the MRI to provide us a sort of description or structural description of the spine itself. And what these new techniques are going to give us is really an assessment of the spinal cord inside the spine, how the function is, how it's working, what the impact of the compression is on the spinal cord. 
And not just that, because of the way that they're processed and delivered, they're going to give us objective numbers as opposed to sort of lots of subjective descriptions. And presumably because of them having sort of higher levels of detail, you'll be better able to counsel or inform the people that you're treating. Well, I hope so. And I think that's a really important point of what what we need this information to be able to give us. And I think in the fullness of time, hopefully that certainly will come out. So on a practical level, what are the implications of undergoing these sorts of imaging studies? Are they more invasive than the current being used? Well, I think that's something that, that Shaker really does touch on and, and characterise well in his interview, because at the moment, you know, these techniques are more time intensive, you know, they take longer, you need to be even more still to get really good imaging quality in the, in the scanner. And everyone knows who's been in an MRI scanner is, is quite uncomfortable. But I think as, as Shaker alludes to, it's, it's really about refining these processes to find a solution that works both for the patient and the professional. And I think it will come. I'm certain of that. So thanks very much to Bizan Arabi, Rosie Hillman and Shaker Kerpad for joining us. This podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. We'd love to hear your perspectives on these research priorities. So drop us an email, info at myelopathy.org. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with the final item, number 10 in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from AO Spine, individualizing surgery. Don't miss it. And in order to make sure you don't miss it, why don't you subscribe on your favorite podcast app? Until then, goodbye.